Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. You may recognize my mug or my voice as the host of what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast produced by Franklin Covey called On Leadership with Scott Miller. In its fourth year, 200 and nearly 50 episodes where every week, both on camera and on audio, we interview some of the brightest minds in the world, best-selling authors, business titans, celebrities, researchers. And what we found is, is that often the biggest celebrities weren't the most listened to, commented, or downloaded on. It was the people like today's guest that had a relatable career, did some extraordinary things in their journey that we had great lessons for each of us to learn as we built our own careers. And we spun off this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations. And today our guest is Krista Bourne. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Verizon's Consumer Group. Joining us from her home, Krista, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Krista, I want to, in a few minutes, talk about your whole journey. But one of the things that I liked most about reading your history was what I think is your career value proposition. And it's very simple. And you, you say it as find ways to help employees improve customers' lives and thus improve your own life in the company. And I think it's so simple, it's profound. Talk about why that's kind of your mantra and your own value proposition, then maybe back into what has been your own multi-decade career inside the Verizon organization. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question, Scott. And you know, the thing is, is when I first came to Verizon, I got a job that was in the mailroom, and it's all connected to how I anchored my career around that, that point you just made. My job was in the mailroom, and it was intended to get mail where it needed to go, including a group of letters that we would get from consumers. And when I came to Verizon, I did not have a cell phone at the time, so I didn't have a personal point of view. But as I was reading the letters, it became really clear to me how important this service was to the consumer. And it was also very clear to me that there was really just a misunderstanding between our company and the consumer. So I found it to be really enjoyable, very rewarding to try and take that feedback and make the business better. As my career expanded, my customer base expanded. It became both internal and external customers, meaning employees and consumers. But the mission was the same. You have to listen to the feedback and be willing to take it in in order to make things better. And that's how I've navigated my career from the mailroom through roles within customer service. And I got to learn about revenue retention, how to build relationships, large team leadership, budgetary choices. I then moved on and relocated and tried my hand in sales. This was very good for me because I learned the other side of the business, how profits were made, how real estate uh, factors in, promo, placement, et cetera. So that was really a lot of uh, learning, distributed teams, commission-based organizations, just a whole other side of the, of the solution we were selling. And that led me to expanding roles of responsibility where I got P&L ownership, uh, where I was a president of a region. Then I got the opportunity to establish a whole market, one of six wireless markets for the company. We had an incredible run for three years in that model. Uh, and then uh, recently here, we have re, um, reorganized and I've gotten a great opportunity to be chief operating officer for the consumer group. So that's 24 years in a quick rundown. 
I mean, Krista, it really is a masterclass in career management because what you did in a nutshell was you became intimately aware of your company's money-making model. What was their purpose? How they generated top-line revenue and profit, and then you aligned yourself invaluably to all of those uh, assets, if you will. I think it's so important in our careers that we understand what is our company's money-making model. Not just their mission, not just their purpose, but to make ourselves you know, fairly indispensable, but also in control, in control of our own careers. I mean, you have an American success story of literally starting on the front line in the mailroom, working your way to become the chief operating officer of Verizon's consumer group. What are some of the key lessons from that journey you just said that are replicable in everyone's career, regardless of where they started or where they want to finish or what industry they're in? Pull out three or four things that are sort of universal career principles that all of us need to be reminded of. Yeah, well, you just said one of them that I think is critical, and that is you need to align yourself with the company's strategy. I do often remind people you may not always be able to choose your boss or the team of people you work around, but you do get to choose the company. So what do they stand for? Research them and understand their strategic vision as best you can. Because that's what you need to align to if you want to catch the attention of the right people, but more importantly, learn through your journey. The second I would offer is I don't consider any job or role within the company the end point. It's an assignment. It's a stop along the journey. Your goal is to learn from the role you're in, give to it what you can, but build skill sets that are transferable that will take you to new places that may not even be established yet. So don't block yourself in. Build a suite of skills and capabilities. Think of your jobs as assignments, a course of study. And then the third uh, is to really understand your boundaries especially in a big corporation where you have a lot of choices, a lot of options. You've got to be really curious about what's in front of you, but you need to also understand what your boundaries are. Um, these are really important to think through because you can find yourself in a very exciting role, feel very fulfilled, learn a lot, or you can see that you were pulled into a role that ends up not being a good fit for you, but you're going to have to figure out how to navigate that time uh, if you want to continue to move your career forward. So know your boundaries, consider it an assignment, and align with strategic vision. Oh, you and I are so going to co-author a book together. Stand by. I will be calling you. You have articulated that your leadership philosophy really grounds in what you call these four Ps. Purpose, picture, plan, and part. Today, we're going to spend the majority of our remaining conversation talking around what is one of your big passions about purpose, and I'd like you to maybe level set the definition. When you say purpose, you mean what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. If I could just take a moment, those four Ps, I've got them from a book I read a long while ago called Managing Transitions by uh, Dr. William uh, Bridges. And in these four Ps, they talk about how they work together. So the P for purpose is really about the vision. One of the key things of leadership, in my opinion, is to be able to paint a picture about a place or, or a level of success that you haven't yet achieved. A place that people don't necessarily believe exists, but you have to create the belief system. So the first thing you have to do is identify the purpose. What is it you're trying to achieve in that vision? 
That's important because a lot of times it's going to require some level of change. Change is difficult because it means something has to end. And the way that you can move through that change is when people are clear about the purpose. Well said. Uh, in your experience, both within Verizon and I'm sure out with your customers, what's your sense of how well leaders in general communicate purpose? Are they, are they over-communicating, under-communicating? Have you seen an improvement maybe post-pandemic? Um, rate, rate us at large on our leadership competency on clarifying and communicating purpose. Yeah, well, listen, I think when you are in a crisis, and certainly the pandemic was a crisis and is and still so many uh, folks are still struggling with it. I think when you have crisis, you have a lot of transparency because you want people to have confidence in whatever it is that's happening around them in the role that the company is playing. So there's a lot of information being shared. In the normal course of business, uh, that transparency level can change at times. And I think that the best leaders communicate purpose understanding their audience. What does that purpose mean for them? Not necessarily just for the organization at large. I see a lot of leaders take it to that degree where we talk about why we're doing it for the business, why we're doing it for the organization, maybe even why we're doing it for the consumer or whomever we're selling or serving. But if we don't connect it to what does that mean for the people we're talking to, the workforce, the employees, the partners, then we have a bit of a gap. And so in those four P's, one of the P's is part. And that part means what part will the people play? Whoever you're talking to. So for me, I think about my large frontline organization. Uh, my organization in total is over 30,000 people. When I'm gonna communicate purpose or vision, I can't just communicate through my lens and my view. I need to make sure I'm thinking about how will the customer service professional receive that? How will my sales professional on the front lines receive that? What will my most tenured executive think about that? That's the key to communicating purpose. Krista, this might be a generalization, certainly a stereotype, but you get the sense that the younger generation now is perhaps more concerned, focused on questioning purpose, being aligned to purpose, understanding their employer's purpose than perhaps my generation. Is that true? Do you find that everybody wants to understand purpose, but perhaps they didn't feel like it was their responsibility or their right? Talk about that. No, I think every generation cared about purpose to some degree. I just think it showed up differently. I know my generation, I had a purpose where I, I really just wanted to have stability in my life. I just wanted to have yeah. something I can rely on and look forward to. And, and that was very personal to me. Mm -hmm. I think this incoming workforce, they are just challenging how real is real. That's how I interpret that. Purpose is being thrown around. It's a bit of a, a buzzword. And I think that people want to know that there's substance to it, that it will be funded, that it matters, it will be prioritized, that they're not signing up for something in namesake only, but isn't really being lived or executed on a daily basis. So I, I just think that our incoming workforce is holding corporate America accountable for all the goodness that we are able to do, that we say we want to do. And the fact that corporations are now able to monetize being a good corporate citizen because consumers care about that, it means we need to be even more authentic uh, with how we show up with purpose so that it's not just a tagline or a catchphrase. 
That was beautifully said, Krista, truly. Uh, tell me, for people who are purpose agnostic, I mean, there are employees and companies that really don't care about their purpose. They are there because they need a paycheck. They work hard, they do their work, they're nine to five, metaphorically, and they don't really care that much about purpose. Their, their life isn't about working. They're there you know, to earn a living and provide for their family. Quite frankly, they may not necessarily care where they work. Doesn't mean they're not competent. Is there a place for that person in every organization? Absolutely, I think so. Because their purpose might not show up the way that I would imagine it on behalf of the corporation, but if their purpose is to make a living and their purpose is to do that with a company they can count on, and if their purpose is to do that with a product or a, a solution that has some kind of longevity, uh, that, that can also be just fine. Because at the end of the day, our two agendas are going to come together and we'll have a common agenda, which is the job that needs to be done. I need it done on behalf of the brand for all of the reasons we've discussed. And then that individual may very well need it for their own personal brand at home or whatever they're doing with their livelihood. So I think there's room for everybody. I think it's a matter of how you define purpose and how you leverage it to tap into the skill set of the worker that you're trying to bring on board. Krista, I appreciate your candidness. Let's get even more real. Uh, to what extent do uh, customers care about purpose? Like, for example, I, I don't know that I know my wireless carrier's purpose. I know their name. I probably know where they're headquartered. I know my, my monthly rate. I know how quickly they resolve an issue, but I couldn't tell you their purpose. I don't know the purpose of most of the large companies that I work with, the kind of car I drive or the airline that I fly. I probably know if their values are aligned with mine based on some crisis in the news and how they handled it. But to what extent do customers really care about purpose and how should they be part of that story? How do you communicate it to customers? Yeah, so first I'm gonna go back to the employees. I think employees care about purpose very much and employees are customers. And so that's how I think we get it into mm -hmm. the consumer space is that you have to remember that you are in many ways um, in a bubble where you have a focus group of employees around you. And if you're engaged with them and you're talking with them, you'll uncover very quickly what kind of purpose people care about and how it might show up. So, you know, I think there's a number of measurements in that regard. I think part of how you communicate it to customers beyond employees, if you're in my space, we have a retail distribution arm. It has to show up in that space. Mm -hmm. It needs to show up in the way that we operate our supply chain so that you stay out of the headlines. Customers might not know about your purpose directly, but they will certainly react to a bad yeah. outcome where yeah. your purpose is not being lived to its full potential. Mm -hmm. And that is, is as dangerous as anything that you can imagine for a brand. So I just think that employees are customers. You start there. It should show up everywhere a customer shows up. So if you have the benefit of stores, you can leverage the stores, leverage service, leverage, leverage supply chain, and really think about what would the reaction be if you showed up in a headline where you were not living your purpose, that's when you'll know that customers care most about it, whether they knew it or not. I was interviewing um, General McChrystal once for, twice actually for our podcast, and we were talking about the, what it means to be a military leader, right, on, on, on high leverage missions that the public may or may not understand or fully agree with, and he said something profound. He said, yeah, you never get credit for what you do right. You only get blamed for what you do wrong. And there's, um, there's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there true? Isn't that true? 
Let's talk about your leadership journey. Um, how many direct reports do you have? Uh, today I have five. Oh, five lucky, lucky you. Lucky you. Somebody's <laughs> smart on the span of control at Verizon. You've got five. I want you to picture them in your mind right now. Or perhaps maybe there was more previous to that. And I'm going to ask you the two sides of one question. How would they describe your leadership journey, your leadership style, positively? And what might they say critically? What are some things that you do that you know you're self-aware and that you need to work on? Give yourself some compliments. What would your team say is something that they enjoy and appreciate about your leadership style? I think my team appreciates my optimism. I think they appreciate my realism. I'm also very collaborative. I'm a very effective communicator. And I think that I have a reputation of being a supportive, encouraging leader. I'm also very grounded in um, the reality of our world. And I think that that helps when you're an operator like we are. Um, I think something they would tell you that I could do better is because I am so um, eager to collaborate and represent their work, I tend to ask a ton of questions. And I think sometimes they would really want me to just get to the point. What is it you really want to know? And then let me just give you that set of answers. We've come to learn over our relationship that the questions I'm asking is really an opportunity for them to teach me. It's not about me inspecting them, but I'm not as close to their business. They're on my team because of the expertise that they represent. And so my Q&A style, um, it does sometimes throw them for a loop, but we work through it as a group. And, and I think that uh, today they've come to really appreciate it, but it is something that they asked me to work on at one point. <laughs> Thanks for your self-awareness. Uh, I want you to think back to the person who's been the biggest transition figure in your professional career. Tell me when you've got that person in mind. The person who had the biggest impact believed in you more than maybe you believed in yourself. Got it. Got it. Uh, what did you learn from them? I'm going to tell you, this person said to me once, um, <laughs> you're paid for an opinion. And so what I took away from that discussion was that I needed to stand tall in my truth I needed to trust my research, and I needed to remember that I was there for my point of view. And that can be something that's difficult to grow into as an individual. It's even more difficult when you're diverse or you're a woman and you already feel like you're trying to fit in at times. And so this individual was very direct in saying, you are paid to have an opinion. You are respected because you research. Well said, you are respected because you research. Let's talk about leadership traits, professional competencies. When you're looking to hire someone at any level in the company, you're obviously not interviewing people at the retail level, although you're responsible for some of that ultimately. What are some of the leadership traits in 2022? Professional traits. Like what are what are the basic things people have got to establish? And then kind of what are the bonus competencies that you look for to hire someone onto your team? Sure. So I'll take it in a couple angles. First, I look for three things for sure. It's beyond skills, but it's, it's three characteristics. I look for credibility, integrity, and likability. Likability in the sense that I don't need you to invite people to your home for a Sunday night dinner as nice as that might be. 
but I also don't want people to run when you walk in the room. Mm. I need you to be likable enough that people want to be in your presence because that is how the communication flows and that's how the relationships internally are built. So likability is pretty important, not something I'm interested in teaching. Uh, you either have it or you don't for the opportunity in the audience. Credibility, people have to believe you. You have to come with a set of credentials that makes you somebody that they can look up to, can trust, et cetera. So I think credibility is important and integrity from the sense that I never expect you to lie. That's not the point. When I think integrity, I think I don't want you to cut corners in a process either. I don't want you to circumvent things that should be repeated over and over again. I want you to use them as they're designed so we can get them right, not work around them. So I look for those three things off the top. In terms of skill sets that I think you need to have in this you know, era that we're in, I really think uh, data literacy is critical. Knowing how to read the data, to find the story, to find the narrative is so important. Everywhere you go, people want to make data-driven decisions. And the best way to do that is be able to actually read the data, find the story, pull out the narrative, and not just give me the black and white number on paper, but tell me what does it mean. So I think data literacy is critical. And then the second one, um, I think, is honestly just really being a, an effective communicator. There are so many things that are new norms and things that haven't even yet settled down coming out of the pandemic. Consumer behaviors are different. Labor market is different. Um, expectations are different. And so the more effective you can communicate, I think the farther you can take other aspects of your journey and your career, like outcomes and transformation and other opportunities that you'll want to lean into. I think communication and data literacy are two very important things. I want to dive deep on both of those because I think that's a great value add to our viewers and listeners. Uh, I happen to now, like I mentioned before, have the privilege of hosting what is Franklin Covey's leadership podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. And every two weeks we have a team meeting, the production crew, the bookers, the analysts, we all meet together and we review the numbers. Number of subscriptions, number of opt-outs, number of views, and there's a particular individual on the team who I don't know very well, and uh, I'm sure they're very competent or they wouldn't have been hired here. And when it comes time to review all the social analytics, it always goes like this. I'll make the numbers up. There were 40,000 opens and 17,000 click-throughs and 1,700 likes and 80 shares. And I think every week, this person is just reading the numbers off the Excel spreadsheet. I, I could do that. I, I, we're paying you for an opinion. And I have no idea. And every week, week after week after week, this person, who I'm sure, I'm guessing is very competent. I didn't hire them. And I don't know them at all. I, I text the team and saying, this person just keeps reading the numbers on the spreadsheet. There is never any assessment of them. How does someone learn the skill of interpreting data? You said something that was genius. You said you've got to be able to tell a story from what the data says. Where do you learn that skill? How, how do I encourage this person to figure out what does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? Is that industry norm? What should they be doing that really impresses me each week more than just saying, I can read the Excel spreadsheet. Why are you on the phone call? Well, you know, two very basic things come to mind, and, and I tell you they're super basic. Uh, but one is 
I would not allow them, or maybe I would encourage them to submit an executive brief in a word form. So I don't really want a graph. I don't want a slide with numbers. I want you to tell me in a word document what these numbers mean. Sometimes people need a new format. They need a template. They need to imagine the information being communicated in a different form. Sometimes they need to be forced to be the communicator. So now that I've offered you a new template, and I've told you that I want to receive it in a different format, I now, the second thing is I'm going to ask that you deliver it. What are the numbers telling you? What was the story you found? And when you have to own it, articulate it, have a conversation about it, that kind of repetitive practice yes. helps you start to yeah. think about those numbers differently in the future. Yeah. And I, I don't want to belabor this point, but I think it's a relatable example. Sometimes other people will say, wow, that's a really good number, or that's really impressive. And I'm thinking, well, is it? I mean, compared to what? And I'm just kind of thinking, you know, I'm paying you to have an opinion. I'm not your leader. But I think it's a leader's responsibility also, and I should perhaps rise to this occasion, I'm not their leader. I'm the talent. That's what they call it. You can debate whether or not I'm talented, but they call that guy here the talent. Um, is, is, is that really good or not? I think this is an important skill. When you mentioned this, I was thinking of my three sons. My wife and I have three young boys that are eight, 10, and 12. Don't do that. And I'm thinking about the skills they need 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and this, you've nailed two of them, right? One is how to code, probably, right? The whole technical side, because everyone's gonna be in technology. But secondly, is how to build a narrative, how to build a story, how to tease out what's the insight from this data I'm gonna think a lot more about that. The second thing you said was being a great communicator. Just a few episodes ago, I had the privilege of interviewing the, the recently former president of Nintendo USA. And when I asked him what was the number one skill he saw lacking in the incoming workforce, he said <clears throat> interpersonal skills, communication skills. The irony was not lost on me that the president of Nintendo talked about that. And he, he talked about how important it was you know, to have balance in all things in life, right? Not be a gamer 10 hours a day. Uh, I could not agree with you more. If I had to hire someone, I can teach you Excel. We can teach you how to code. We can teach you everything. What I can't teach you is self-awareness. I can't teach you how to diffuse conflict, how to say things in a way that doesn't diminish people, but that inspires them, that you are a great team player and communicator. Go a little further into that. What does great communication skills sound like, look like, feel like? How does that show up in a day-to-day -day environment at Verizon? Yeah, so I think there's a couple elements there. Uh, timeliness is one of them, right? So sometimes I think we think about communication like always on the big stage and I have to have this big right. presentation. Right. Sometimes it's just literally one-on-one -on -one conversation that needs to happen. So I think how quick we are to have a conversation, no matter how big the audience is, is a key thing. Um, the, the second piece is I think sometimes we don't give enough credit to simply outlining our intent. Take a minute and outline what is it that you want whomever your audience is to take away from that discussion. What do you need to have happen next? Because I think you can easily over communicate or under communicate without realizing it, but when you jot out an outline and intent, it can become more clear. And then I think the, the I will just give you my, my tip for myself. I always use what I call my natural language. I try really hard to stay away from 
fancy buzzwords that I heard someone else use or, you know, big fancy talk that might impress somebody because it will almost always come out um, in an unauthentic way. It will almost always shake my confidence because it's not my, what I call natural language. So I think you have to be really clear about what makes your communication style work. For me, it is the everyday speak that I use and I try to really kind of stay anchored to it. I love that you said that. Uh, like you, I've had a multi-decade career in one organization, nearly 27 years at the Franklin Covey Company, and my best leader in the company, I've had some amazing leaders, was a guy named Chuck Farnsworth, and he was this sort of a homespun cowboy, and he'd never carried any papers, no binders, no PowerPoints, has a fairly, fairly simple vocabulary, you know, master's degree education, but very simple, and the guy, the guy can get along with cowboys and farmers and CEOs and Wall Street analysts and college presidents. Meanwhile, I've worked for some other bosses that were very slick and sophisticated, that had enormous vocabularies. I sometimes have fallen into that trap. And you kind of always felt dumber around them. They didn't lift you mm -hmm. up. Their, their intention, mm -hmm. I don't think, was to diminish you, but you never left feeling buoyed by them. You always felt a little bit shameful that you didn't quite know what they were saying or thinking. You couldn't relate to them. Meanwhile, Chuck had enormous influence over you. You wanted to please him. You wanted to earn his trust. Sounds like you're a similar kind of leader to Chuck Farnsworth. Yeah, Scott, I just think that that's, that's just critical. It makes you relatable. It makes your message believable. And, you know, I learned uh, through a TED Talk workshop, so I don't want to take credit for it, but through a TED Talk workshop, this concept of the ABCs, audience before content. Yeah. And that has really stuck with me because it's exactly what you just said. You got to know the audience uh, and you have to be able to build your content or your outline around the audience. Otherwise, you know, you've communicated, but it doesn't make it effective. So ABCs of communication, audience before content. Krista, on multiple occasions in this conversation, you've been very deliberate about ensuring that you attribute credit to other people who perhaps coined a phrase or came up with the four Ps or wrote the book. I'm guessing you learned that from someone the easy way, the hard way. Why is that so important to you? I mean, obviously, just from an integrity standpoint, but why is it so important to you to make sure that you are very deliberate and including stopping the conversation with me to kind of rewind to give credit? Where did you learn that important skill? Well, I'll tell you first, it's something that I always hope that someone would do for me. I think that there are moments when you yourself as an individual contributor or a leader of a project, you actually lean into something and it's okay for other people to talk about your work, but you hope that they'll reflect on you at that same moment. So I try to be very conscious of it. I also like to be really clear with my audience that I am a continuous learner and I am willing to learn from anybody in any situation and make my own decisions on what I do with that learning. But, but I am open-minded. So I like to be that transparent. I think sometimes leaders come across like they just know it all, they got it all figured out. And that can leave an audience feeling like they can never reach that standard. And I just think that that's a missed opportunity. At the end of the day, every leader, your most exceptional person is learning from an article they read, a conversation they had, a class they took, a podcast they listened to. And all those resources matter, and everyone that went into putting that resource out there for you deserves to be recognized. Krista, I don't know you beyond this interview, but my sense is it speaks to your leadership style 
which is to probably give credit where credit is due, including to the genius on your team. It's a great thing to remember. People know when we've taken their credit, and they also know when we've given them their credit. Krista Bourne, Chief Operating Officer for Verizon's Consumer Group. Thank you for joining us today. What a great conversation. Masterclass in leadership, career development, and making sure that you know your company's purpose and money-making model and being fiercely self-responsible for aligning yourself to it. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>